You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I got a special announcement for you. I have been part of the Peak community for almost a year now. And here is the thing. Less than 1% of the marketers become CMOs. And you know what's even harder? Staying a CMO without a high caliber peer network that can help you beat the odds. In Peak community, they build a community around you by creating exclusive events and experiences to help you become 1% better each week. So you can get promoted, have an impact, and do the best work of your life. This episode that you're listening to is an example of the conversations that happen literally every single day in the Peak community. So check out, the link is below. If you want to be part of it, it's only for marketers. So make sure you're not a lurker, but someone who want to have an impact and do the best work of your life. Let's go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to F the Funnel Workshop and the 2020 B2B SMX Conference. Uh, I'm Jeff Pedowitz. I'm president and CEO of the Pedowitz Group. And for the last 13 and a half years, we've helped over 1,500 customers worldwide drive over $50 billion of revenue by transforming technology, building better customer experiences, and transforming business operations. In the next 90 minutes today, we're going to introduce a concept about moving away from the traditional funnel. We're going to spend some time talking about the challenges, and um, we're going to present a different model called the loop. That really starts to explore how we move away from traditional, purely process-driven approaches and move more towards customer engagement. Uh, If you've not received it already, you should check your email shortly. Uh, Demand Gen Report is sending out uh, exercises for this morning's session. And also following the session, you'll have full access to this presentation as well. And this is also being recorded. So for whatever reason, if you guys have to drop off, uh, you'll be able to access this material at any time. Uh, the Q&A portion of Zoom has been disabled. However, the chat function is fully operational. So as we're going through each slide, if you guys have any questions at all, please post them. And I will pause periodically to be able to address those questions. So today's workshop will be in four parts. Uh, Part one, we're going to talk about uh, why the funnel is bad. So we'll start off by exploring the concept of why as marketers, uh, a lot of our companies don't love us. We'll have a brief history of the funnel. We'll talk about Newton's lie. And then uh, we'll start to bridge into uh, understanding why. Uh, our companies and customers might not love us. And we'll look at some of the behaviors that we're engaging in that would cause us not to love them. In the second part, we're going to do a formal introduction of the loop, which is a completely different model to drive demand and engage your customers. And part three, we're going to actually spend time together building a business case. So for those of you that want to move forward and implement this in your business, you'll have an opportunity to do so. And then we'll just spend a few minutes at the end uh, talking about next steps. And we will provide you with some additional opportunities if you choose to engage, if you like this material, uh, we'll have those at the end. 
So uh, with that in mind, away we go. So let's start off talking about three CMOs. Just there are many CMOs out there, but let's talk about three. Uh, the first one is Cindy. She's a CMO of a financial services company out in the West Coast. Oh, several billion dollars of revenue. She goes after B2B and B2C. And she's been struggling uh, to move to a more account engagement model. Uh, and her team has been stuck in different types of business models and segments. She's got a lot of different contention in her database, overlapping models, and she can't get one good view of the customer that she can drive strategically with the sales team. Then we have Derek. Derek's up in Boston. He's VP of marketing at a startup. And so all they want him to do is drive demand, Derek, drive demand. So he's in an ever-ending quest to drive more leads into the top of the funnel to give a young and hungry sales team, get them to escape velocity. And then we have Marisol. Uh, Marisol is in Atlanta. She works at a mid-sized company, and she is actually trying to move to an account engagement model as well because she serves a niche market, her company does, and uh, there's only 5,000 target customers. So the traditional methods of driving more leads, more qualified leads are not actually helping her grow wallet share. So if some of these brief snippets sound like you or in the zone, uh, you're in luck because we're going to explore more of these concepts today. So first, let's talk about why don't they love us? Well, at the heart of everything in business, it really is about relationships. And we in marketing, we actually serve many different customers. So we have the relationship with our actual customer customer, but we have relationships with our company. We have relationships with sales. We have relationships with IT. We have relationships with analysts. We have relationships with our channel partners. And when relationships are good, good things happen. But when relationships are bad, we don't get the results that we want. So what we want to talk about for a brief minute is this kind of conflict of good relationships and bad relationships and why in marketing we're struggling. So let's start up here in quadrant, one, quadrant number one, because ultimately relationships do impact revenue in a positive or negative way. In quadrant one, when we have a poor company relationship, Marketing is typically seen as a cost center, not as a revenue center. And we struggle to get authority and credibility on the things that we're doing to help the company. We get pressure on our resources. We're constantly being asked to do more with less. We oftentimes are missing targets around leads, MQLs, contribution to pipeline, and we tend to have a higher turnover. And this is a very frustrating place to be when we have a poor company relationship. But when we have a poor company relationship with our company, then it often means we have a poor relationship with our customers. And I'm using this, of course, in a, a metaphorical way. I mean, we can have good relationships, of course, um, and interact and have professional relationships at work. And we can also have very good and friendly relationships with our customers. We're just really exploring this in, in, through the lens of how these relationships actually impact our overall performance. So in Quadrant 2, with poor customer relationships, marketing is predominantly focused on leads and activities and is using the funnel in a largely transactional way, right? Let's get more leads through the top of the funnel. Let's qualify them. Let's get them over to sales. Uh, so it's about volume and velocity, right? It's an engine. So we're using that funnel to drive a steady flow of qualified demand to sales. The problem, though, even in this model is 
the funnel is we're focused on just getting the customer from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel, ringing the bell and starting from the top again. Um, and we still miss our targets. We're still missing revenue targets for the company and sales is complaining that our leads aren't good and our customers aren't happy. The reason why our customers are not happy is because the funnel is narcissistic. Why is the funnel narcissistic? Because we set it up for us, right? It's, it's a process tool. It's just another management vehicle that the company uses to run demand. And look, let's face it, for well over 100 years, it worked pretty well. Uh, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute when we get into the history of the funnel. But the challenge is, is it really has limitations as the world moves more and more towards customer centricity and customers have control over their buying cycle. They don't want to be in a transaction. They're not going to fall from the top to the bottom. So when we're using a funnel that's really about us and closing more deals and not about customers, that's why we have a poor customer relationship. So in order to take the next steps to build a good customer relationship, we have to stop focusing on transactions and we actually have to focus on the experience that our customers are having with us through the entire life cycle, not just when we're acquiring them, but when we're expanding them as well. So we have to move from being focused around transactions and tools and technology and campaigns and widgets. And we have to focus more about the relationship and building trust and building respect and ensuring our customers are getting value. We move from a funnel to a loop, and we'll talk more about the loop in a minute. The loop is meant to be a metaphorical model, not an absolute. The loop on its side, it's an infinity. It's just merely meant to represent that we engage with our customers continuously, and our customers can be in multiple phases of the loop at the same time, because that's in reality what happens in business today. And the funnel doesn't really take that into account. So when we have good customer relationships and we are building respect and we're building trust, it's going to allow us to achieve our targets and we're going to be more customer centric as a company. So when we have good customer relationships, we can finally move to quadrant four. Now we can have good company relationships. Marketing is now a revenue center, not a cost center. Marketing has authority, credibility, and becomes a change agent. We get increased resources. We drive repeatable, predictable, and scalable revenue. And we actually have career security and have a seat in the boardroom. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the history of the funnel, uh, but I wanted to give you guys just a brief overview. And I'm not sure if many of you are aware, but the original concept of the funnel started out in the late 1800s by a man named E. St. Elmo Lewis. He actually was coming up with a mechanism to build better advertising for marketers. And the concept started with, hey, we got to build great awareness for our brand. Then we have to generate interest. We create desire, which leads our customer to take action. They respond to the newspaper ad or the radio or whatever it might be. Um, and then they engage. And shortly thereafter that, William Townsend in 1924 took that basic advertising concept and used modern manufacturing principles and assembled what really became, for more or less, the gold standard of the funnel, uh, awareness, interest, desire, and action. And we've seen some iteration of this for many, many years. And then in the early 2000s, when uh, marketing automation started to come into foray, modern CRM systems and uh, internet and digital buying behavior started to accelerate, serious decisions uh, was formed. Uh, and I'm sure most of us are very familiar with serious decisions and they really found a, a better way, right? They, they developed a better mousetrap because what they realized was uh, with the modern digital techniques and the way the buying cycle was starting to change that there had to be more mechanisms. It was not just a simple matter of awareness, interest, desire, and action, but demand can come from many different places. It can come from customers, it can come from salespeople, it can come from BDRs. 
And they started to benchmark that demand and they analyzed thousands of customers to create ubiquitous standards. And then it allowed companies to compare their standards against, uh, against what Sirius published. And it worked really, really well for the better part of 10 years because even though customers were starting to take more control from a digital perspective, it really gave sales and marketing a, a little bit more rigor in, in order to be able to predict and analyze and compare their funnels. Uh, and then around 2011, as inbound marketing really started to take off, um, 2010, uh, the tofu-bofu, uh, tofu-mofu-bofu model emerged, where we started to think not just about customer and leads, but we started to think more about content and what type of content we needed at different parts of the funnel and how could we engage with more meaningful content to draw people in. Uh, but you see, it still largely didn't change in terms of an overall structure. It still ended with the close. Same thing with the waterfall of serious decisions and same thing with this model. And in 2017, serious decisions came back and updated their model again and really um, continued to have all of its standards, but also expanded the concepts about different types of demand and what marketing and sales and the company had to do. Because even they started to realize that it's not just a one-size-fits-all approach, right? That, that, that there was different types of activity and different ways to engage and different ways to measure what you're doing at different parts of the funnel. But they still kept the funnel largely intact. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we introduced the loop. It's actually been out in market for a couple of years now. And uh, in 2018, we presented this concept that it really isn't a funnel anymore. It is a loop because the challenges with the funnel are, one, it assumes that there's some force of gravity, right? That customers are going to start at the top of the funnel and they're going to just fall down to the bottom. And then look at how all these funnels, no matter who built the funnel, it ends at closed. But that's not really what happens, right? I mean, we all want our customers, want to keep our customers, want to turn them into clients, and we're going to continue to work with them over a period of time. And the funnel model doesn't really represent that concept. It doesn't really take into account that we actually have active customers that we need to continue to sell and develop and work with. So we presented these stages of onboarding, adoption, value realization, loyalty, and advocacy. Because we wanted to really think for the first time about, hey, after the close, what does a company have to do in order to be able to engage with our customers? Second is with any version of the funnel, no matter who's you're using, or even if you came up with your own, the reality is that we have lots of different products and services. And, and if we're selling different types of products, we sell B2B, B2C, if we have transactional models and considered purchase models, not all funnels are the same. So uh, you could have three stages for one funnel, 17 stages for another. You could have different rates of velocity. You could have a 30-day sales cycle. You could have a, a six-month sales cycle. Uh, and then also, when we start to benchmark against other companies, even if they're in the same industry, we might have different pricing strategies. We might have different sales teams. We might go to market through channels. We might have different branding and messaging. There's a lot of factors that can impact your own performance within a funnel. So benchmarking can only really get you so far because really what you should be doing is benchmarking against yourself just in terms of your overall performance. So there's a lot of um, challenges with the existing funnel because they don't really meet the realities of how we do business today and how customers buy. And then also, once you can only really be a lead once, right? Once you're buy, you're a customer and we want to make that customer into a client. So in a funnel, somebody could already be a customer but then if they go and consider another product or purchase, they're coming back through the funnel again as a lead. 
And it's a very disconnected experience for the customer. We have all experienced this to some degree or not. You know, you go into a doctor's office and then you keep going from office to office and they keep asking you for your history over and over. Or we call into some vendor on the phone and they keep asking us to revalidate our name and our social security number and our account number. It's very frustrating. So it's the same thing even in B2B. We want to be able to recognize that the customer is a customer, even if they're interested in another product or service. Also, funnels don't even address account-based engagement or buying centers. They only engage the individual. And no matter what kind of funnel you've set up, even if you add multiple contacts to the opportunity, that first contact uh, is the one that great is the lead source, right? So when that lead comes in and you convert that contact, um, and then you look at the opportunity where the lead source is, the campaign source is, it's based upon that first contact. So even if you're using marketing platforms to engage multiple people, that activity is not being aggregated in your CRM around that specific opportunity. So when you're trying to forecast activity, you're missing all the other activity in the buying center that's actually occurring because you're, you're preoccupied on the one individual and their behavior. And that affects forecasting as well. And so the funnels really don't take into account modern buying centers. When you have 8, 10, 12, 15 people on a buying center, they're only really following one single person. So that's really a lot of the drivers behind how we arrived at the loop versus the funnel. So if you think about it, if you guys ever played this when you're a kid, or if you have kids that play this now, um, buyers don't buy sequentially. They buy like this. It's a game of shoots and ladders. You know, despite best intentions, nobody just follows rigorously in a straight line down the funnel. They're going to move up. They're going to move down. They're going to move sideways. And then, of course, we have all the other buyers and people that are on the buying center. So all these people are on the buying center, right? They're all different personas, a part of the accounts that we're trying to sell to. And they're all moving up and down at different times. And so we have to be able to take that into account in a new modern reality. Right. So now this leads us to exercise one. So hopefully all of you guys uh, have this in front of you. And so what we want to do is take a few minutes now to list out several of the pros and cons for the funnels and uh, loops. So up at the top, what would be some of the pros of continuing to use the funnel? Uh, what would be some of the pros of continuing or, or starting and adopting the loop? And then what, what are the cons from your point of view on the funnel? And what are some of the cons on the loop? Um, and you guys can also, if you want, you can put this in the chat window to share. And then also, if you have questions at this time, uh, you can put them in the chat as well. Okay. Um, funnel makes more sense. All right. Now let's talk about some of the cons of the funnel. So management does not like change. Everyone talks this talk. Yep. And not just management, right? A lot of times sales and marketing doesn't want to change either. I mean, if you think about it, if you were to move away from this for the loop or for anything else, that's change. Changing systems, programs, campaigns, reports, data. Um, is it worth it? What's the payoff? Usually the funnels around one contact versus the account, right? So you, you have a limited scope of who you're looking at. Yes. Very good, Brett. Thank you. That's a good one. Um, yeah. Um, Stephanie shares its linear and approach. Uh, Simon says it's a uh, sales centric, not account experience centric. Yeah. Uh, Freya working harder, not smarter. And uh, Megan, not every buyer follows the traditional funnel. So it may be affecting conversion rates. Uh, Deacon shares don't know where someone is in the funnel. Um, and then also buyers are researching solutions early on in the buying process. And there are different buyer personas involved at different points. Yeah. Good stuff guys. All right. Now let's move over to the loop. Um, what would be some of the pros? of putting in a loop, right? We might be able to track the influencers. 
right? Because influencers do get lost in a funnel. Uh, it allows for a single buyer in multiple stages. Yeah. Uh, it allows you to, to consider the entire customer journey. Yeah, that would be a good pro. Uh, it, it, users, it uses existing customers as an asset in your marketing efforts. Yes. Pros, a copy's more accurate picture of a consumer, allows marketers to pivot. Um, realistic to how we buy. Uh, integrates the customer engagement strategy into a larger marketing strategy. Don't have to come up with a whole separate initiative. Yeah, and it, it includes customer transactions, not just net new prospects. Good. All right, now let's move on to some cons uh, of what, what, what would be a con of implementing the loop. Difficult to set up systems. That could be a con. Yes. Someone mentioned change management earlier. Uh, it would be difficult to change. Uh, Stephanie shares, it's hard to explain to sales. They've been trained on the funnel for so long. Yes, they have. <laughs> uh, requires more integration across marketing, sales, and customer service and experience teams. Uh, it changes tracking methods without, without a baseline. We would need a lot of content assets to align to all the points within the loop. Uh, managing the back and forth of the buyer. Uh, there's a risk of poor ex customer experience impacting prospecting efforts. And it's new. It's scary. It's hard. Yes. All, all good stuff. Just out of curiosity, I'm thinking about, you know, because we all have some percentage of our revenue comes from our existing customers. Um, how many of you have 10% or less of your revenue come from your existing customers? Um, 11 to 20%. Oh, wait, wait, Andrew said we could do hand raise. So that might be easier. Just up the percentage. Or you could just type it into the chat. Uh, that's a hand raised on the clap. Got it. All right. Andrew, what would be the best way if I'm just doing a quick poll, if they want to indicate to your response, should they raise their hand or should they just put it in the chat window? Ron, I thought you could do hand raise, right? Or is it a yes, no functionality too? That should be working. Do people need to do something special for that or is it better to just type in? Yes, no functionality is working and they can certainly type it in, but I don't have the hand raise functionality enabled. Okay, sorry, then it's just yes, no. And those would be in the reactions tab at the bottom of your... Uh, yeah, so if you guys... Have, yeah, the reactions tab, or you could also open up the participants window, I believe, and then there's a yes and or a no. And then, so, Jeff, right. I did share the link to a Dropbox where I uh, uploaded the, uh, the slides so anybody that didn't get those, they will download them from there. Perfect. And that should be in the chat window as well, guys. So uh, it was posted at 1124. For those of you that have not been able to get the exercises yet, you can click that link. All right, so real quick, if you guys can all find the yes, no. So uh, less than 10% of your revenue comes from your existing customers, okay? Um, so we have two, two, yes. Uh, 11 to 20%, all right, two there. 21 to 30, two on that. Uh, nice, interesting, even in distribution so far, uh, 31 to 40%. Fascinating. 41 to 50, 51 to 60, 61 to 70. All right. That was a little bit more popular about four and, uh, greater than 70. Okay. So fairly even distribution there. Uh, we, we definitely have, um, a decent number of companies here in, in attendance today that have to do, really do focus on traditional demand gen and acquisition because you have a much smaller percentage of your revenues coming from your existing base. But it looks like there's about uh, 40 to 50% of you though that have a pretty decent amount, anywhere from 40 to 50% or more of your current revenues coming 
from your customers. And so when you get into that ratio, it just implies that you need a little bit more of a balanced approach um, to making sure that you're not just acquiring new customers, but you're also protecting and growing your base. So let's look again about some of the advantages and disadvantages of a funnel versus a loop. So funnels overall, they are narcissistic and they're ineffective methods for engaging customers and driving revenue. I didn't say though that they're not ineffective methods for driving a pipeline <laughs> uh, uh, and building something predictable to work with sales on, but they, in terms of engaging customers and driving revenue on both sides, they're ineffective. Um, loops, they are relationship oriented, they're customer focused methods that maximize customer lifetime value and they deliver RPS, repeatable, predictable, and scalable revenue. So first, if we look at the dimension of customer centricity, funnels do tend to focus on us as the seller, as a management vehicle to be able to manage and forecast demand, uh, where loops really are 100% buyer focused and it really zeroes in on the behaviors and the things that they do. When we look at engagement, a funnel, at least as it's designed, typically ends at the sale, uh, where as in a loop, it really never ends. It's really about being in an infinity model and engaging with that customer continuously. The metrics, uh, a couple of you pointed this out, metrics would change, you're right. Um, in funnels, you know, we're looking at predominantly volume and velocity, right? Number of leads, number of qualified leads, conversion metrics between step, we look at length of sales cycle uh, and so on. And in a loop, we would probably measure those things, but we're also moving more towards customer lifetime value uh, as we truly try to understand how to get our customers to become clients and increase annualized rates of spend. Uh, attribution model. Um, again, now there's different ways to do attribution. Uh, we have a whole other workshop on that. But uh, in a funnel, you know, the attribution, again, predominantly is around the primary contact related to the opportunity. Whereas in, um, in a loop, the attribution is based upon the segment, the phase of the loop, as well as the buying centers. So you're thinking about attribution a little bit differently. And then finally, the types of campaigns that we're typically executing in marketing in a funnel, they are often push and company centric. We're doing a lot of product related marketing. Um, and in a loop, we are pull. So we're placing content and messaging and offers strategically at, at different places and times. And it's a more customer centric approach. So uh, the original question, why, why don't companies and customers love us? Well, it's because in many ways we don't love them. It doesn't mean that we don't care about our customers. Of course, all of us do here today. We all want our customers to be happy. Uh, we all commit to customer service. We'll all take whatever steps we need to respond and react to a customer to make sure that they're satisfied with our company, our product, and service. But being customer service oriented is not the same thing as being customer centric. Setting up mechanisms like um, cases and service centers and, and response times and support centers are again, our company management constructs to be, to be able to react to a customer. In customer centricity, we're actually designing our products, our services, the touch points, engagement, the content specifically around the customer because we truly are building our company around the customer, not around our products and service. So there is a difference. So let's talk now about the loop. And sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> so you guys are not, don't have blurry vision, but uh, hang on a second. There we go. All right. Let's see. That's better. Um, okay. So this is the loop. It focuses in on customer acquisition, 
And then it should also say customer expansion. So in customer acquisition, this part should, would, should be very familiar to you, right? You have someone that's unaware, they move to aware, there's consideration, there's evaluation, there's a decision. Um, but then there's also customer uh, expansion. So you're moving into onboarding, which is a critical stage, adoption, value realization, loyalty, and advocacy. So it starts to really take into account now that this is an ever-growing swim lane where customers and prospects and accounts and buying centers, they're moving around and around and around. Um, think of it as like air traffic control system, but for marketing. And in a loop type of model, your customer can be in multiple phases simultaneously. They can't do that in a funnel. So we can have a very loyal customer that's been using product number one for 10 years, but they can be completely unaware of product number two that you just launched. Or we can have an advocate in one part of the company and then a buying center in another part of the company that's considering some of our products and services. And so quite literally, if you were to heat map this, the more products and services you sell, the bigger your company is. It is very feasible and realistic that your clients will be in multiple phases of these stages at the same time. So now, though, recognizing that our, our customers are in this infinity loop, we have to start to think a little bit differently about how we're going to engage with them in, every, in any given part. So, and I apologize for this. This say expansion. So this is uh, just going to fix this in real time because it's driving me nuts. This is real-time editing, folks, for marketing. If we can only fix our content and email campaigns that quickly, right, when something happens. So uh, let's spend a little bit more time focusing mostly on this part because I know that you guys are very familiar with this part over here. Um, it's, it's this part that really makes a difference as we move away from a traditional funnel into customer centricity. So think about onboarding for a second and how critical that is. We work so hard to win the deals, right? We're, we're marketing, we're selling, we're whining, we're dining, um, we're getting people to talk to our references, and then we close that contract. And then the onboarding experience sometimes can be very smooth, but oftentimes it could be very erratic or there's a delay. So we've built up the customer's expectations as to what type of experience they're going to have with us. And then this becomes the first moment of truth uh, when we deliver. So let me give you a very simple example that we can all relate to, checking into a hotel. Have you guys ever had the time where you were looking forward to a really nice trip with your spouse or your family or your friends, and you get to the hotel and no one's at the front desk, right? Like you've had a long journey, you're tired, you're getting ready to get your vacation on, you just wanna have a good time. And you go to check in, there's no one there. So you're waiting for a few minutes, you tap the bell and still no one comes, comes out and then, Inevitably, you know, you start to get impatient. So you kind of tuck your head behind the counter or there's one of those side doors, you know, and you get to the office and you poke your head in. Hello. Hello. Is anyone here? And then, of course, someone comes out. You can't be here. Right. I, I know, but I, I just wanted to check in. Yeah, it, you've got to get close the door. You got to go back out to the front. You can't be here right now. I'll be with you in just a minute. Right. And, that, and that's your first experience at this hotel. It doesn't feel very good. Right. And then you get up to your room. What happens? Um, you're tired, you log all your luggage up, the key doesn't work. So you got to like leave your, your, your spouse and your kids and your luggage and you go downstairs, you know, get the key, come back up. You check in, 
right? The bed's not unmade, or the room smells like smoke, or they don't have shampoo. And these are all little things that get in the way of an onboarding experience, as opposed to, isn't it awesome? Like sometimes, I don't know if you guys ever take your car to the dealer and they can read your little RFID. So you start pulling up and the sign comes up and it says, Hey, welcome, Mr. Pedowitz. You know, we're so happy to have you. And they come out and they greet you by name and they know who you are. And so whatever product or service we sell, whether we sell a very small service or a widget, or we sell complex goods and services, that first period after the contract signed is a critical time to really start building that customer experience and what they think of us for the very first time. So if they have a really good onboarding experience and we can, and that we can start to introduce them to our people, our team, it's going to facilitate what happens around the rest of the loop. So next we move into adoption. And this is when the client really starts to use our product or service for the first time. Now, look, if it's a small product or service that we're selling a couple hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, and if the client or the customer doesn't use all that product or service, it's not the same thing as when someone is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars because the ROI expectations are so, so different. But what we're trying to do here is develop different types of techniques to make sure that our customer is using whatever we sold them, whether it's a product or service, because the next step is really the make or break point um, for what happens afterwards. So the customer had a whole set of expectations when they went to buy our product or service. They have things that they're thinking about in terms of what kind of ROI or how they're going to measure their efficiency or their effectiveness. And so when they, and that's value realization. So did they realize the value uh, at or better than what they thought? If they did, they're going to be more likely to move forward to become oil. If they didn't, well, they probably might not buy again unless they don't have any other choices. And so this is another critical time period when we're trying to help the customer realize value. Now, loyalty is something, of course, we're very familiar with in marketing. Uh, a lot of us do have loyalty programs or reference programs, uh, but it's also a, a recognition that a company can be loyal and buyers cannot be. Buyers can be loyal, but companies may not. Because when you get into buying center mentality, uh, loyalty becomes a little bit more of a difficult concept to, to measure, measure and engage. And so this is a recognition that we're trying to get both our client, the company, and client, the people, to be loyal. Um, and so in this case, there's just repeat, reliable purchasing. And, so, and if we ask them to be a reference, they'll be a reference. If they, and uh, it's just steady. And then advocacy is something that we all dream about but do very little often to really promote. I mean, advocates are the ones that you don't have to ask them to do anything. I mean, they love our product or service so much, they're going to scream from the rafters and go out and tell other people to use our product or service. Now, we do this sometimes in our individual lives with restaurants, right? If we really had a great experience with a restaurant, we're going to go out uh, and, and tell people like, hey, you got to go check this place out. And so again, it, it's really important to try and get more people into these final phases because they will have more of an influence on how much of our customer lifetime value goes up over time. Okay, so now we're going to start exercise number two. So what would it mean if you move from a funnel-centric to a customer lifecycle loop operational model? So again, what would be the pros, okay, if you, again, stayed on, on uh, the funnel but moved to the loop? What would be some of the barriers of adopting the loop? And then what would be some of the cons? And for purposes of this exercise, probably just spending 
more time on this side. So, um, okay, so Matt shares one of the pros is always providing value to the customer. Love that. Great contribution, Matt. What would be another pro of moving from funnel centric to customer lifecycle centric? Always providing value to the customer and knowing where your relationship is at all times. Yep. Better view of multiple buying centers. Good. Identifying different moments to add value to customers. Also good. Generating more revenue from the customer over the course of the relationship. Like that. This is better source of content testimonials. Far more potential for repeat and returning revenue. Good. Creates more word of mouth marketing. Love that. Systematizing a lot of the marketing and sales. Good. All right. What would be some of the barriers to adopting the loop internally? Uh, change is certainly one, right? And it's probably a lot of change in behaviors. What would be some of the other barriers? Yep. Silos, stakeholder adoption, uh, different metrics. Uh, we, I suppose we would probably have to create some different content too, right? Or maybe even a lot more content if we don't have it for the customer expansion side. Uh, finding data sources for analytics. Uh, may, may need more from the product customer support team. It's complex working with groups that marketing may have not engaged in the past. Uh, definitive tracking of where they are in the loop. Yep, system capabilities for tracking those metrics. Taking the time to put it in place, resources to do so. All good stuff. Okay. And we would need a true account management layer, not just marketing and sales personnel. Also really good. All right. And so if those are the barriers, and you know, cons are different than barriers. Barriers are just things that we recognize are getting in the way, but we can move through them. Again, what would be a, a con of just actually moving from being funnel-centric to customer-centric? Why wouldn't we want to do it at all? Would, I, would anyone offer something up here? Yeah, that's a harder one, right? <laughs> um, can't replicate the success with the funnel. Brett, you want to expand on that? You can go unmute, I think. Uh, funnel is working. Oh, yeah, so basically just saying like, hey, this is a tried and true methodology. We can say predictably, here's what we think we're going to do in our funnel, you know, this month, next month, next quarter. And so when you change it to a different system, you, you may not be able to say that with as, as much certainty as you did in the past. Yep. And I got a parallel to that, right? Is what happens with sales and marketing every day, right? When sales gets more budget, they're like, well, look, if you just let me hire 20 more reps, I can go hit this number. Versus marketing says, well, I'll run these campaigns and that campaigns. And it's, sometimes it's hard to prove unless you've really got your attribution model nailed down. Right. So, yeah, you know, if the funnel has worked for many of you in the past and you can reliably count on it, why change? It, you know, so that, that, that would absolutely be one. Um, and uh, Bridget, yeah, the, the, cleaner, the, <laughs> the funnel is cleaner to see movement, at least as the way that we're traditionally used to seeing it. And you could see that ROI, at least on the acquisition side, for sure. Um, is the loop just a series of funnels, though? Um, no, it, it actually isn't, Matt. Uh, because it's, look, while you're still trying to determine behavior, you're actually engaging in a very different way. So just to cut to the chase, because it sounds like we've got some really um, advanced people on the call. So a lot of us use the campaign object right, uh, in, if, we're, if we have Salesforce as a system. And we're typically used to doing marketing attribution by source or channel or by campaign. When you move to a loop, 
you're moving away from source and you're moving more towards segment and campaign. So the behavior that you get from your marketing system, or if you're using something like visible, there's a lot of things out there that can track activity, both on-site and off-site without getting into a big discussion about all those technologies. So if you can measure the activity and you can see where your customer is at, you can set up segments in your CRM system and campaigns, and you can aim the campaigns at the segment. So now what you're really trying to do is drive engagement at a segment. And instead of trying to understand where someone is specifically at a given time, you're really trying to maximize what you're doing with the campaigns for that segment. And since we apply resources and dollars and campaign and um, channels and content in a campaign, we measure attribution at a campaign level, not at a source level. So it's not so much about first touch, last touch in a loop model anymore. It's more about which combination of campaigns and budget is driving the best yield and performance at any given section of the loop. And so you can actually do all this without funnels. And it actually is much simpler to set up than you guys might think. Uh, to move towards a loop. Anybody want to unpack that a little bit? So like I just gave you a ton of information. Um, yeah, Charlie, you did it, um, yes, please unpack. <laughs> I figured you guys would do that. That's a smart group, you know, and uh, I, I've been working this conference for years. So, um, okay. So think about it this way. Uh, I'm assuming most of you have Salesforce or Microsoft or some major CRM system. Um, so uh, it would, it's just really a simple matter of setting up either a custom object uh, or a table that's you're pairing it with the campaign object. Uh, because you can actually then, between demographic data, um, or if you're using a system like Visible or um, an ABM system like Demandbase or Sixth Sense or Terminus, um, these systems now have the capability with AI to measure activity not just on your site, but off-site. And then you take that activity and you aim, um, you set up campaigns that are aimed at that activity. So it's not just purely an, an account engagement model. It's you're using the intelligence that these systems provide. So you go in and you set up a segment and depending upon each of you, what criteria you want to be in that segment, because again, some of you might have two stages on each side of the loop. Some of you might have 10 stages on each side of the loop. It doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters is you say, look, for my company, when someone's in consideration, it means this. They're going to be looking at this content. They're going to be this type of person. They're going to be um, doing these types of behaviors. So if they're in that segment, I create a trigger to set up the campaign that, that fires off the content or sends them to a place. They consume that content. And whether they're in there for 30 seconds or three days or three months, they're passing through and it's the campaign that's serving it up. And so it's different than going into Marketo or HubSpot or uh, Eloqua and a traditional branching program where it's based upon time or trigger. Hey, I'm going to send an email. I'm going to wait three days. I'm going to send another email. You can still do those things too. But in a loop model, it's more about the pull, right? They're going to go to different sites and you're, set, you're, you're, you're laying the content out there for them to consume. And when they consume the content, the customer is getting what they need so that they can then move to the next stage. So you're using the tools to meet them where they are. Um, so this probably could be a whole other workshop. We get into a longer conversation, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit more insight in terms of how it does, because I'm sure the wheels are spinning right now. Like how would you actually set this up? Um, 
the really the, the hard part is not actually the technology here. It is the change. You know, it's, it's actually getting your marketing and sales teams to think differently when we've been doing this for a hundred years, you know, we're so hardwired to use the funnel that thinking about this concept, even though we strive to want to be customer centric, this is a vehicle that actually gets us to be there. Um, so yeah, I mean, Kenzie, you can build map a journey based upon consistencies you find in your customers. You're exactly right. And by the way, SAP is a great CRM system. So thank you. Thank you guys for mentioning that too. And you can do this in SAP as well. You can do it in Sugar. Uh, you, there's, there's lots of systems. Um, so uh, yeah, good stuff. Okay, next one. So in light of what we're talking about here, the customer owns their journey, but multiple groups engage at every stage. So if you're having this debate internally, like who owns the customer? Does marketing own the customer? Sales own the customer? Service own the customer? No, the customer owns the customer. Uh, they are in charge of their world. But all we're trying to do here is recognize that we play roles at different points of time, right? That it's not just marketing or sales or services, that no matter what stage our customers are in, as they're moving around and around, we need to engage at different levels. There's different activity, there's different content, there's different messaging. And we're just trying to line up with where they're at so that they get what they need and they can move to the next step before they come back around. So exercise three. What I'd like you guys to start thinking about now is, again, uh, this part probably is more familiar to you, this first side of the font, uh, because this is much looks a lot more like our traditional buying cycle. That being said, think about not just what your marketing team would do. What would sales and service do at some of these points? Secondarily, how would we use some of the tools and technology and processes we have today at each of these stages? Um, one of the things that we see a lot, because we, a lot of our customers work with so much technology, is that the technology that marketing and sales buy is oftentimes used disproportionately for acquisition and not enough for expansion. So. If you have any marketing automation platform and most of your engagement programs, your nurturing programs um, are set up just to acquire customers, when they can just as easily be also set up to do onboarding and adoption and value realization and reference management, that's how you start to get a much better return on the investment of the technology you're already investing in versus going out and buying another tool. Um, you know, it was, it was really fascinating when Gartner came out with a prediction almost 10 years ago that by 2017, marketing would be spending more on technology than, than IT. And that came true. Not only that, but the average marketing company today spends 24% of their budget just on tech, which is crazy, you know. And then they get under pressure because we're not getting enough resources to actually support the technology and use it. So it used to be like five or six years ago, one marketer could run. Marketo or Eloqua or, or Eloqua and Salesforce. And now that same marketer is being asked to run five, seven, 10 systems and do a number of other things. Um, so we have to evaluate what we've already invested in and figure out how we get better yield from these tools, or maybe we need to start phasing out some of these tools. But while we're going through this, um, hopefully you guys are also jotting down while I'm doing the talk over, but where can... Um, some of these other departments help. You know, could we use service in some of these early stages, right? Could they help with use cases or meaningful content that would be helpful? 
Um, what should sales be doing? Again, we often talk about how the buyer is 60, 70, 80% through their journey before sales gets engaged. That is true. But is there something sales could be doing? Should they just be waiting, just sitting on their hands until uh, the prospects are getting here? Or are there other types of behaviors or things sales could do here? And what types of processes could they use? So sales can share our content. Awesome. Um, yeah, if you're using something like um, a Gaggle um, or Grapevine 6, there's a lot of employee advocacy platforms now that companies are using. Uh, there's also things like HighSpot, SalesLoft, Outreach.io. There's a lot of uh, sales engagement tools that people are using now to help sales engage and share content. Um, yeah, cold calls and emails could fit, certainly as a tactic. Um, you know, it's cold calling is still happening. It, it's just a lot harder to do. Um, and it's, an, it's a classic example of more interrupt marketing. But uh, there are companies that still use it and can use it to effect. Um, but I uh, think, though, about some of the other behaviors and things that sales can do as well that would add value. Because uh, while cold call is a cold call, um, is it adding value to the customer in the moment? Um, sales can share content, but they, they feel they, they not feel that they should create when really sales does have an opportunity to create sales could become more trusted advisors, right? They don't just have to be known as traditional sales that closes the contract. LinkedIn is a great channel to use. Absolutely. And a quick time check here. Thank you. Session host. 35 minutes remaining. Okay, so let's move to the second part. What can sales do differently in onboarding, adoption, value realization? So these, in many cases, are probably new phases for you guys. Again, a lot of us do something regards to loyalty. I mean, we do keep a log of references. We certainly do case studies. Uh, some of us do have user groups, uh, communities, where we might be doing some of these things, which is great. Uh, so those are all suggestions, though, for you, if, if those of you who are not doing it, to think about. Um, but what are some of the things that we can be doing here? You know, and how do we close that gap from the time that the contract gets sold? Because really, it's a kind of a crappy experience when you sign a contract and the first thing that you hear next from the company is the invoice. You know, versus just getting a welcome video or you get your login to the portal or platform or customer success manager reaches out to you or they send you a gift basket in the mail. I mean, you know, there's a lot nicer ways <laughs> to welcome our customer on board versus just sending them the bill. Um, sales can certainly check in uh, throughout the onboarding instead of a handoff. Yep, absolutely. Uh, marketing, they can have customer-centric content available, FAQs, support page, live chat. That's awesome. Love that, McKinsey. And, and uh, so if those of you that are using um, conversational bots like Drift on your site. Another great way where it, it, those things don't have to just be used for prospects, right? They could be aimed, especially if you have interior pages or customer support pages, they're a great way to engage um, and provide content at scale. So a very, very good one. Um, your marketing automation platform, you could be putting in um, evergreen nurturing programs, or you could write specific onboarding programs. You guys could build microsites uh, for your clients to log in and engage and they can track their progress. 
Um, so a lot of different things. Uh, if you have a mobile app, uh, you can do in-app messaging. So lot, lot, lots of different things that you guys can do to drive onboarding adoption and value realization. Um, anybody have any questions before we move on to the next exercise? Okay. So next, let's talk about the metrics. So uh, a few of you met, uh, mentioned a little bit earlier that we would be measuring different things, and you're right. Now, maybe not so much on these spaces, because again, I, I honestly, I swear I had, whoops. I don't know why keep showing up. I apologize. Drives me nuts. Okay. So these are probably very familiar to you. Let's talk more about these types of metrics. So in onboarding, we can look at whether or not they're engaging in content, the time to full-scale adoption. We could look at retention rates as an early indicator. Uh, for many customers uh, that have a mature onboarding, they can measure the correlation between successful onboarding and then value realization, renewal rates, and expansion. And so it's another dimension to look at as an indicator. Um, we can look at churn, net promoter score. In adoption, we can look at utilization, business value achieved, user satisfaction, whether or not they're engaging in the community. In value realization, we're looking at time to value, process efficiency, process effectiveness, return on investment. So a lot of us probably do have some type of customer survey, whether we're using a traditional NPS or we're doing milestone surveys. Um, they're all helpful to a degree, but Ultimately, they don't really give us a lot of insight in marketing and sales on whether customers are really thinking. And if, uh, asking someone if they're happy or not, that is an emotion. And while it's somewhat helpful, emotions are fleeting, right? Hey, you could be having an awesome morning right now. And I can ask you right now, are you happy? And you guys are probably, yeah, I'm happy. You might give me a full smiley face and a five out of five. But uh, I don't know. Let's say your water heater goes out in your house an hour from now and your kid comes back with an F on, your, on their test and you got some bad news at work. And if I ask you the same question at three o'clock in the afternoon, are you happy? I'm like, no, I'm not happy. <laughs> you know, you, you might be having red on your smiley face or give me a two. So those types of questions are not very helpful in terms of actually making significant investments in our sales and marketing approaches for our customer. So we want to ask different types of questions. Because whatever we're selling, whether it's a product or a service, it's really what our customer is using it for and what value. And so how do they get the value? Did we help them make money? Did we help them save money? Um, are they becoming more efficient? Are they becoming more effective? How are they measuring a return on the investment they're spending? These types of questions will be much more directionally helpful for, for you guys to determine whether or not you're truly meeting your customer's needs versus asking them how likely they would be to recommend. Look, that's a good question too. It, it's just, it doesn't give you enough information uh, in order to understand why they would or wouldn't recommend you. So these types of metrics as you're going forward are very helpful. When we measure acquisition rate, retention rate, we look at attrition, we look at wallet share. Uh, certainly those of us that are in some type of SaaS model um, have a lot of these measures and we look at monthly churn. And so those are also a good vehicle. Um, then we also want to look at um, advocacy as well. So we want to look at influenced revenue, the win rate when advocates were bringing us in clients. Do we have a higher win rate? Do we have what what degree are our advocates driving revenue within our pipeline or customer base? 
Do they help us shorten the sales cycle? Um, what's the ratio of when we got a reference or an advocate um, to win? How many advocates do we add over the last calendar year? Um, and then do we have advocates for each segment? You know, and not just the segment within this life cycle, but industry segments, right, that we're selling into. So again, different metrics to think about as you start to analyze how this might work in your own environment. So your new dashboard could look something like this, right? Where you don't have just the traditional funnel metrics. You are actually looking at how well your onboarding is doing, how well your adoption is doing, uh, whether or not you're truly driving value for your customers across your product and service mix, uh, what your loyalty KPIs look like, and finally your advocacy. And look, it really doesn't matter what business visualization tool that you're using, whether you're just doing it straight in your CRM, if you have some type of BI tool, if you're doing it even on a, on a cocktail napkin, it, the most important thing is that you're measuring the right things so that you can get more customer centric and you can always make them prettier over time, but it really still comes down to the data that you're actually measuring. So, and again, and this would be a case where I would, I would love to say it was someone on my, my team, but no, it was me. So <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote these decks. So um, earlier I asked you guys a, a question about where you fit. And it, there was a pretty even distribution across these lines. So uh, working with customers over these past few years, uh, we found that it's really helpful to set some directional guidelines on where you should be distributing your program budget. And a lot of times we do see, regardless of what this looks like, that uh, clients spend too much of their budget on acquisition and not enough on expansion. And if you think about it, the greater the recurring revenue is coming from your existing install base, you should have um, a greater allocation of your budget towards customer expansion. Would any of you uh, take a counterpoint on this? Would you guys argue that the budget should go almost all towards acquisition? Well, thank you, Charlotte. I appreciate that. Because I, I, I always do love a good debate. So if anybody wants to take a contrarian point just for the hell of it, that's, that would be good too. So what does that mean, Sohina, not in today's economy? Does that mean like we need to spend more money on customer acquisition in today's economy? We need to focus on existing customers. Awesome. Okay. Um, we do have to balance acquisition with retention. Uh, one of our new clients, they just they told us that their CEO uh, gave them an edict that for the next two years they can only focus on their existing clients. Uh, it was, it's uh, so that I thought we thought that was interesting. They're they're not to spend a single dollar on acquiring new customers. They have to put everything they have into their existing clients. Um, but yeah, Sandra, you're right. I mean, look, if you're a startup company, also, and and you have different goals um, and or you know, maybe you're trying to go public next year. And so you're going to be looking at how quickly you add, even though you do have a strong recurring base, there could be some, some uh, logical business goals, why you would want to spend still more money on acquiring, because uh, you're just trying to show uh, escape velocity. Um, but yeah, Carrie, you're right. There's way more revenue potential growing existing clients. Okay. Um, and Agil, agree with you, but management team does not. They feel it should be all acquisition. Yeah. That, and that's always a, a tough challenge, right? And, but that's also an example of what I'm trying to highlight today. Um, again, this loop, it, it's, it's a metaphor, really, not an absolute. Uh, it, it's really meant to say, 
it's really easy to use the words and talk about being more customer centric. But if we don't actually really change the way we're approaching budgeting, the way that we're thinking about engaging with our programs and campaigns, the way that we're uh, communicating and working with sales, then really they're just words, right? We're not actually taking meaningful steps to move towards building customer lifetime value. Okay, so for this next part, what would be some KPIs that you guys would measure? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to move back to a couple charts because I don't think that you have that one um, in your exercise manual. So if you guys want to use that as a possible reference. So I'm just going to jump back to this one for a second. And then for those of you that have that chart, you can spend a couple minutes writing them down. Um, and Talia, sometimes it's hard to show marketing impact on existing customers because sales believes that at that point, it's all sales relationship. Yep. And look, and that would be true if sales was truly driving that relationship. But that's not really the case a lot of times if they're just waiting to get the renewal. Um, sure, a lot of us that are in a subscription business have some type of customer success manager program or some type of account manager program. And you could make a bit of that argument. But look, it's really not any different than trying to measure marketing attribution on the acquisition side either. Uh, because the simplest way that you can show whether or not marketing is having an impact or not, and forget first touch, last touch for a second, just pull out all the opportunities won in the last 24 months where there was no marketing touch at all. There will always be some, right? And then compare it with all the opportunities that marketing had one or more touches on. And look at things like length of sales cycle, size of the deal, win rate. Um, and, and, and that's a good place to start just to show whether or not marketing is actually influencing and moving the needle. And then you could take that same approach and apply it to customer expansion. So let's look at all the customers that have, have expanded their lifetime value in the last 24 months and where did marketing engage? And are we seeing a greater increase of growth of lifetime value? when marketing is engaged versus not? Do we have less attrition, right? So these are the things that will help uh, with data prove that marketing is having a positive impact on not only getting new customers, but keeping them and growing them, okay? So I'm gonna move down now to the next exercise. You guys good on this? Does anybody need any few more minutes? We've got about 20 minutes to go. All right, so now we move into building the business case. and. Like we've all been here before, right? We have so many things that we want to be able to do and bring to our company, but we get struck down so much. It's a political game. <laughs> it's a budgeting game. We have to fight with finance. We have to fight with CEO. We have to fight with sales. We have to fight with IT. Um, and we just keep fighting the good fight. Um, but look, whether or not you do want to um, introduce the loop or not, this is still a good model to use for anything that you guys want to use going forward. I mean, ultimately, it would be awesome if we had a dashboard that looked like this, right? We can measure everything, show everything that we can't just um, build our case through emotion. We have to use logic and grounding data to be able to drive our point home. Okay. So again, this is a really good straightforward framework. You could probably find this in several different places, but we like to use it because it really covers all the bases. So first, whether you're investing in the loop, for this workshop today or anything that you want to look at is how does this actually help us improve our customer experience? So we could look at, are we increasing revenue per customer? Are we increasing the number of customers through this initiative? Um, what would be the revenue impact 
of improved customer experience. And then um, what's your variability of an estimate, right? Is this, um, you pretty, feel pretty good with your numbers. So you would go with an L for low, or honestly, it could be all over the place, just depending upon how you implement it. Because it goes to your credibility, of course, that you have a risk model. It's not just coming up with numbers to measure what you're trying to do, but what's the degree of variability on the numbers that you're actually presenting. And so the more L's you can use, you can get into a tighter band. Uh, it helps you with your credibility, especially when you're sitting down with finance. The next area that you want to look at is, does investing in this help you drive competitive differentiation? So we can look at what the current revenue is. Um, and then we can look at, can we get market share growth by implementing this? Or would we deteriorate? Can we get a higher average net price or a decrease? Um, what's the revenue impact of that differentiation? Can we impact margin? And again, what's that variability? The next thing is, it's not just selling the products and services we have through the business models that we have. But whether you're putting in a loop or you're going through any type of digital transformation, small or large, it's well, how are you developing new revenue streams, especially within a digital world? Can you take your current offerings and come up with different types of business models, right? So a simple example would be moving from a traditional licensing model to a subscription model. That would be an example of a new revenue stream. Maybe you can add training. Uh, maybe you could add a, a consulting or advisory offering. Maybe you can uh, offer a warranty maintenance program. Uh, there's a lot of different things, of course, that you guys can come up with. But with putting in a loop, when you start to focus on the full customer, not just on how many customers you can get through the funnel, would you be able to develop new revenue streams? So what's the total addressable market for your company and your product or service? Could you increase market share by doing something here? What would be the incremental revenue, gross margin, and incremental profit? Now, moving over to this side, let's look at increasing user productivity, right? Because ultimately, we know this already in marketing. We're always asked to do more of less. Some of us literally have one person on our marketing team. Uh, some of us on this, on this call right now have uh, 500, 1,000, 10,000 marketers under us. It's still never enough, right? We're still just constantly trying to figure out how to do more with what we have. Um, so within our size of pool, how do we actually increase our user productivity? Uh, can we increase the number of employees working on relevant activities? Um, can we get the tasks that we're doing done faster? If so, how much faster? Um, what is the current rate of production on our team? Um, can we get an increased productivity benefit? And again, what's the variability? Can we use our money better, right? Whether you're using CapEx, OpEx, you know, how can we put the money to work? So can we lower the overall operating cost of operation? Can we put in centers of excellence? Can we streamline our use of technology? Uh, can we do it with less headcount? Can we outsource it? Uh, can we improve our production efficiency? Um, and then moving down into how well do we protect our assets, right? Do we avoid downtime? Um, and do we have higher uptime for equipment? Um, there's a business case to be made around compliance. It's not just GDPR, right, that has governance restrictions. Many of us are in, uh, work in industries that compliance is a significant factor. So if we become more customer-centric and we're adopting this loop, will this help us with compliance fees and costs? So, you know, as you guys go through this and fill this out, whether you use this specifically for the loop or for anything, 
it will demonstrate to your C-level and the finance department that you've really put in a lot of thought and effort on how you want to approach your ask. Um, does anybody have any questions on this business case? Okay. Anybody need any more time? I will take that as no. Um, a few more areas, and this should be also in your exercise deck. So if you're looking at making additional investments in software to be able to drive your initiative, that would be here. Um, if you are looking at your service mix, whether you're going to go internal or outsource, um, are there any additional costs? And then finally, so you would take each of these line items and you would bring them over here, right? So you would look at what are all the benefits that we picked up? You would subtract out all the costs that you apply, and then that would give you your net delta in terms of what the business case is to implement the loop or anything else that you might be trying to do. Okay, so as I promised to you guys, uh, I would make a brief offer. And uh, for those of you that are interested in learning more, you can certainly reach out to me directly at uh, Jeff, J-E-F-F, at pedowitzgroup.com um, and be happy to continue to talk to you. Uh, for those of you that would like to do this, and um, we're presenting a couple different options, and you can learn more about them at fthefunnel.com. So there is a drive program where in under 30 days, we'll assess your ABM readiness and your lead management assessment. We'll provide a complimentary consultation, and we'll develop an action plan to put in a loop model for your business. In the Accelerate model, you would have full access to all of our templates, our research, and our asset library. And then you would join a weekly group uh, consulting session where we'll work with you and your team over 13 weeks. Um, and you'd get a chance to not only learn additional techniques to implement the funnel, and the, sorry, the loop, excuse me, but you'll also have a chance to network with other companies. And in the transform version, you're getting individual consulting sessions, not just the group, but you'll also get a full MarTech assessment on your technology. So again, no heavy pitch here. Just a brief offer, and you guys can go here uh, to provide additional information. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share this with you guys today. Uh, a lot of good questions, a lot of good input. And uh, we do have a few minutes left, so any q and I'd be happy to entertain that. Um, how do you get the deck if we didn't receive it? So I think so far we just sent out the exercises, but uh, Andrew, I believe we're going to send this out to everyone afterwards via email. Is that correct? Yeah, you should get it as a follow-up. Okay. Um, if you guys don't get it within the next 24 hours, um, again, uh, I'm just going to give you my email. You can reach me at that email. And that is my cell phone number. Um, all right. So Carrie asks, where do you see channel partners in all this? Uh, company sells through distributor and agent partners. Uh, huge role, right? So wherever you saw sales or service around the loop carry, you could easily add your channel partners in. Um, so there's different things to talk about here, of course, right? There's um, how are you getting them involved? How are you measuring attribution? And you know, there's the classic handoff of uh, when we have a channel partner and, and the company, we source the lead. And then we've got to get that lead over to the channel partner. And then, of course, they don't use our systems. So then what happens to that lead? And, and how do we, um, we always get disconnected from our end customer because the channel partner is in the middle. So that is a chronic problem, whether you're using the loop or the funnel. But 
what the loop does do with, um, with channel partners is it provides an opportunity for us to partner with our channel partners with our customer. So, it, and again, it moves a little bit away from that controlled handoff to talking more about putting things in market. And so uh, you can get there in other ways, UTM tagging, um, campaign codes. Uh, so there's other ways that you can measure um, attribution with the customer. And then again, um, depending upon how you're shipping, because this gets into a whole other discussion, uh, but there is other data that could be pulled in to determine um, distribution through the channel partner. And you could measure lifetime value of your customers through your distributed partners. Um, probably a longer conversation here, but uh, definitely understand your problem because we, we work with a lot of manufacturers that, that do sell and work through the channel. Um, and there are some additional complexities that you have to take into account, but it's also very doable too. Um, how Matt asks, how crucial is the CRM usage by all teammates, the success is all? Well, I mean, that is really is a common system, right? That whether you're using SAP or Salesforce or Microsoft or any other system, it really is important that people have access to the same system so that they can see the data. So if you want people to engage and you want to know what people are doing, sure, you can send alerts or tasks to people that aren't necessarily full users of your CRM and they could go do something. But then how do you capture that mechanism back? And if you want that person that gets the alert to be able to take an action or do something on behalf of the customer, it really makes more sense for them to have full access. And you guys probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. I mean, look, I don't even have all my users in my company have access to this CRM. And the first thing that's here is like, well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, if you're paying $1,000, $2,000 a year per seat or something in that neighborhood, it could get up there pretty quickly. But uh, I, I could also make the counter argument that, but you're probably spending the money in a lot of other places on a lot of other technology that you might not need, right? So if we have everybody using just a couple tools really, really well, you're going to probably get a much better yield and return on investment than you would if you distribute that spend across multiple areas. Other questions? Go on once. Um, all right, next question. What are some of the biggest roadblocks when you work with new clients? Um, won't work with new clients on the loop, just work with new clients, period. Like, what, what do you mean, Matt? On the loop. Okay. Um, well, I, I think a lot of it is getting them to think differently, right? Because here's the thing. Like I said, the technology to actually implement the loop is not that difficult. It, it's the change behavior. You know, when you have sales and executives and that have been using the funnel or some version of the funnel for years and years and years, it's just getting to think differently, um, you know, and, and it's, it's really about getting people to see the possibilities and getting stakeholder alignment. And so I think the most important thing that we um, ask for and stress is getting executive buy-in and stakeholder alignment at the highest levels. This is a very difficult thing to implement if your chief revenue officer and VP of sales is not on board, um, if they have a different vision, version of the world. So sometimes pilots um, or smaller discussions um, or having a parallel track to show different ways. And a lot of times it's uh, when you can get these pilots off the ground and show success, then people want to be part of that success versus trying to do a whole global rollout. It's a lot better to take something like this a little incrementally. Um, so that would be the first roadblock. Uh, the second one is... You know, a content for all of us is an ongoing challenge. I mean, it seems like 
we either never have enough content or we have too much content and can't actually use it in the right place. So um, building truly customer-centric content, even if you're still in a funnel, it's a hard thing to do when we're so wired to write about our products and features and, and from a company vantage point. So really it's, it's, it's moving more towards a customer centric, getting more towards use cases and the benefits and the value realization of how your customers uh, would use your product or service. And so it's a different approach to content, but it, it is one of those things that requires a little bit more discipline. So that's, I would say another area. Um, and the third area gets back to that budget distribution that we talked about a little bit as a team. So let's say, yeah, you want to do this, but you don't have enough budget or resources because you're under so much pressure to keep getting the new logo that ties into the change management. Uh, so, but it's really, um, working strategically to free up some funds. That's why that business case is really important. If you can build a really good business case, then you can free up some of the funds that allow you to run the pilot, prove the results and then expand. Uh, but we have very, very few of our clients, um, even when they're fully on board, say, yep, we got this whole thing. We're going to roll out the, rip of the loop across our company, full scale. We're all in. It usually happens in a, in a degree of stages uh, that, that happens over a period of time. And then, and then they can get there once they start showing that progress and that success. All right. Uh, we have five minutes left. Any other questions? Oh, thank you, Deacon. Appreciate it. Um, and thank you guys, everybody, for participating this morning. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, that we have a lot of great sessions going on at this conference this week. So uh, try and register for as many as you can. Certainly recognize we're all trying to do the best we can working from home and dealing with this pandemic. But um, one of the favorite things I personally enjoy working with Andrew and his team is that every year, it just always seems to come back with this great content. And for someone that's been in the space as long as I have, this is one of the conferences not only do I enjoy presenting at, but I actually like attending because I'm always learning something. I learn from the people that come to our sessions and I learn by going to other sessions. So, uh, and then if, if for whatever reason, you guys got a lot going on and you just can't sign up right now, uh, every single one of these things is uh, recorded and will be available for download and streaming uh, within the next week. So then you guys will be able to um, consume them at your leisure. Uh, if you do have some free time tonight at six o'clock, uh, we do have the annual award ceremony that G3 and Terminus and we present. So there'll be in the neighborhood of like 20 award winners. And, you know, for those of you that really like to see what your peers are up to and, and, and what they did to win the awards, it's, it's a, it's a fast moving, uh, 25, 30 minutes, but it's kind of cool to check out also. Um, so, but, um, thank you guys. Um, really, really appreciate the opportunity. And again, uh, you can reach out to me directly. I provide you that direct, um, information. Uh, you can also go to fthefunnel.com if you want some additional information on these programs, as well as our website, uh, pedowitzgroup.com. So um, thank you guys. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day, great week, and um, thank you. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.